Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, everyone. In today's podcast, I want to take you into the world of Scripture, theology, and church history as we continue our study of the epistle or the letter of 1 John. But first, I want to take a moment to invite you to join me at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina, this fall, August 26 through 30, for a Bible conference entitled, A Little Patch of Grace. My messages will be based on the Old Testament book of Ruth, which is a lovely story of God's goodness set against the backdrop of one of the worst times in biblical history. Do you know that in difficult times, it is possible to discover a little patch of grace in which you can live a happy life and raise your family under the watch care of the Lord? That's the theme of this book of Ruth. Well, you can get more information about this conference and register for it by visiting the website thecove.org or calling 828-771-4800. I'll repeat this website and number at the end of the podcast, but again, the dates are August 26 through 30. Now today, I want to encourage you to never be rattled by the opinions flying around you, but to be vigilant. We're coming to 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it, and then I'll explain briefly what this passage says verse by verse, and then I want to show you how the concepts of this chapter have worked themselves out in Christian history and how it is manifesting itself even today. If you happen to be sitting down with the Bible nearby, then turn with me to the book of 1 John, near the end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 4, and this little paragraph that begins with verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Here, John is emphasizing the importance of sound doctrine. He is vitally concerned about us having a set of beliefs that have been entrusted to the church. 
He understands the importance of having sound theology because what we believe determines the trajectory of every aspect of our lives. It's true today, even on an everyday basis. Let's say that you're hiking on a mountain trail and you come to a footbridge. You stop and study it and inspect it. If you believe it's safe and will bear your weight, you'll likely cross it and continue your hike. But if you don't believe the bridge is sturdy and you think it would collapse under you, well, then you turn back. The trajectory of your hike is determined by what you believe. If you believe the tap water coming out of your faucet is clean, then you're apt to drink it. If you believe it's full of lead that's leaching from the pipes, you'll not drink it. Let's say you take a final exam in school. If you believe you've passed it with flying colors, you'll be happy for the rest of the day. If you believe that you really messed up and failed it, then your spirits will be down and you'll be discouraged. We live by faith in every aspect of our lives. Well, the same is true for our ultimate beliefs. If we believe there is a God who loves us and has given us a book to guide our lives and choices, we'll live one way. If we believe there is no God and we're nothing but random molecules with no true ultimate meaning in life, well, we'll live a totally different kind of existence, won't we? Our beliefs determine our behavior. And that's why it is so important to have clear views about biblical doctrine and theology. This is something that concerns me very much as a pastor. Many of the sermons from a lot of pulpits today are mostly application. Most of the Bible studies in our churches that are small group events are mostly relational. So where are people being trained and instructed in truth and in sound teaching and in deepening theology? Well, that's what John was concerned about. With that in mind, let's look at this passage in 1 John, beginning with verse 1. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. That is, do not be gullible and do not believe everyone who says they are speaking spiritual truth, because not everyone who sounds authoritative on spiritual matters is speaking for God. He says, But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. In other words, evaluate what preachers and teachers and professors and pundits are saying and test their opinions by the standard of Holy Scripture. He says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In the immediate application, John is again referring primarily to those who did not accept the high Christology that he wrote about in his gospel, his high view of Jesus as being both fully God and fully human. I've dealt with that in previous episodes of this series on the podcast, and you might want to go back and listen to them if you're just now joining them. There were people with a weakened theological message who were bedeviling and intimidating the members of John's churches who were staying true to Christ even as others left in reaction to John's view of Christ as he had expressed in his gospel. Well, the danger of eroding theology and false voices is a major subject, not just here, but throughout the New Testament. I think many pastors today are hesitant to warn against and to condemn certain ideas because they don't want to be seen as negative or to offend anyone who might be sitting in their congregations. But Jesus warned, Beware of false prophets who come to you in, sleeps, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Paul warned, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Peter warned, 
There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Jude warned, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. John warned, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Such a person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So what makes us think that we no longer have to warn people about weak theology and about the dangerous ideas that are blowing around in today's hot and gusty winds? There have never been more ways to propagate lies than there are today. So John is saying here, you've got to be careful to evaluate what people are saying because many of them are anti-Christ. They are anti-true Christian theology. And verse 2, he says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. John here is saying that the most basic truth about Jesus of Nazareth is the one that he has explained in his gospel and again is reviewing in his epistle, that Jesus was almighty God himself who came in the flesh, took upon himself full humanity in a human body without sin, so that through his death and through his resurrection, he might provide forgiveness of sins and eternal life for the human family and restore us to God's presence and to a relationship with him as his beloved people. To deny this message is to be anti-Christ-like, to be anti-Christian. And he goes on to say in verse 4, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John, once again, as he has done repeatedly in this letter, reassures those who had remained true and solid in his congregations and under his leadership and who had accepted the gospel. He was reassuring them that they were the ones who really knew God and were from God and of God and had overcome the evil one and had eternal life because Jesus Christ was within them and he is greater than anyone, including, of course, the devil who is in the world. John says in verse 5, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. John gave them a very simple way of determining who was telling the truth and who was lying. He said, whoever listens and agrees with the inspired teaching that I've been giving and that the apostles have, the apostolic message, well, that person is trustworthy. Those who reject the apostolic teachings are not from God. They are the very spirit of falsehoods. So there are two basic viewpoints, he says. We have to determine which ones we're going to embrace, the viewpoint of the Bible and of the Gospels or the viewpoint of the world. 
When we listen to God's Word, the Holy Spirit gives us discernment and wisdom to distinguish the true from the false and to embrace the true and to avoid the latter. Now, I want to show you how John's insistence on this true Christology or doctrine of Christ and the high view of the biblical and apostolic theology worked itself out in the unfolding history of the early church. The New Testament writers universally acknowledged that Jesus Christ was both God and man. I don't have time to take you through the evidence for that. I've done that on other occasions, and we may go back and do it again. But I can go both to the Old, but especially to the New Testament, and show you over and over and over again how they acknowledged Jesus Christ was God, who was also now human. He was the God-man. And that was the understood doctrine for the first two centuries of the church. It grew despite terrible times of persecution, and many of the pastors weren't able to receive good training, but this was the understanding of the church. But in the early 300s, there came a man onto the stage of church history named Arius, A-R-I-U-S, Arius. We know very little about his background or where he came from, but we do know that in the year 313, he became a church leader in the great city of Alexandria, Egypt. He was described as tall, thin, learned, asture, fascinating but proud, restless, and disputatious. He had apparently studied theology under a man named Lucian of Antioch, who had been a follower of a Bible teacher named Origen of Alexandria, and Origen had some odd views, and he tended to allegorize the Scripture. Well, Arius began teaching that Jesus of Nazareth could not be God incarnate. Arius said that Christ was created by God, and that after his own creation, he became the creator of the universe. In other words, God created Christ, and Christ then created the cosmos. Here is a direct quote from a letter that Arius wrote. He said, The Son, that is Jesus, timelessly begotten by the Father, created and established before all ages, did not exist prior to his begetting, but was timelessly begotten before all things. He alone was given existence directly by the Father, for he is not eternal or co-equal or equally self-sufficient with the Father. In other words, he was saying that God created Jesus, and Jesus is not eternal or co-equal with the Father. He is not God. Well, all of the other bishops and the church leaders in the city of Alexandria condemned his views, but Arius continued to advocate for a position that Jesus was not eternal and was not God, and he gained more and more adherents. It became a furious controversy in the church of that time. It so threatened to split the church that Emperor Constantine convened a conference to deal with the matter. The council met in the city of Nicaea, about 100 miles from Constantinople, or as we know it today, Istanbul. It was the first great council of the church since the one that we read about in Acts chapter 15. Indeed, until Constantine suspended the persecution of the church, Christians had been unable to come together freely and safely. But now things were different. Emperor Constantine paid 
for all of the travel and lodging expenses, and so church leaders from all corners of the Roman Empire, the then-known world, packed their bags both east and west, and they made their way to the city of Nicaea. We aren't sure how many people attended. Some accounts say 250, and others say 318 or 350. Some later accounts put the numbers much, much more, and I think it's very possible that the total attendance of the delegates was, say, 300. But the total of number of people who came with them and who gathered for the conference and around the conference rose to maybe 2,000 people. One history book describes it like this. The final end of the great persecution in the Roman Empire was less than a year in the past. Bishops who had spent their lives coping with the antagonistic Roman state could scarcely believe their eyes that a Christian emperor who had even paid their travel expenses, would open a theological council to proclaim the Christian faith to the world. Some of these church leaders still bore the marks of persecution. One man who came had a patch over his eye, which had been gouged out by his persecutors. Another was unable to use his hands, which had been crushed, and he had on his body the marks of having been tortured with a hot iron. Well, all of these people came together, and after Constantine made his opening remarks and some of the primary leaders had spoken and prayed, the council got down to business. It became immediately apparent that there were three groups. One group held the apostolic view that Christ is and will always be God. The second view was made up of the Arians, who thought that Jesus was a created being. But the third group, the majority, didn't really know what to believe. We have to remember that any kind of Bible or Christian school or training association had been very difficult during these persecuted days, and some of these pastors from far-flung corners had very little training. So they were listening. One group after another put forth documents to clarify the issue, and this led to heated debates. But with each debate, the issue became more clear. More and more of the delegates realized that the Gospels and the New Testament did, in fact, clearly state what the church had generally believed up to that time, that Jesus Christ is, was, and always will be God of the same eternal essence of the Father. He had also taken upon himself full humanity to live among us and to die for our sins. He was both God and man and sinless. Well, by the end of the conference, the vast majority of delegates came to this conclusion, and they created a document that stated this, and in fact, only Arius himself and two of his friends refused to sign it. Let me read the document to you. The original Nicene Creed said, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man." and he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried. 
And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And it says, we believe in the Holy Spirit. There was also this postscript. But for those who say, there was a time when he was not, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is from a different substance or essence, or is created, or is subject to alteration and change, these the church condemns. Well, this statement was further refined and amplified in later councils and creeds, but it's terribly important to recognize one thing. The Council of Nicaea did not announce that Christ was God. They simply affirmed what three centuries of Christians had already known and believed and taught. Some revisionist and cynical historians say that Emperor Constantine realized that he needed for political purposes to turn Jesus Christ into a god in order to strengthen his throne and solidify his empire. They say that until then, no one had thought of Jesus as being God, but Emperor Constantine decided to elevate Jesus to the status of God in order to elevate his own status as emperor. If you get into a discussion with someone who is very cynical or has a lot of questions, maybe good questions about the Christian faith, they may bring these things up. But historians who would assert this particular view evidently have not read the New Testament. The entire epistle of 1 John is John's response to the early church and the light of the desertion of those who did not hold to his high view of Christology. And that brings us back to our text. In the first century, John wrote his gospel saying that the word, the Logos, Jesus, was God, that he is both Lord and God. And even our Lord's Jewish critics recognized that he claimed to be God. When some church members rejected that and left the churches, then John wrote 1 John to reassure the church. And this is why he says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, we must listen to what people say and evaluate their assertions according to the plumb line of Scripture. The character of every single person on earth is determined by how they view Jesus Christ, and every false religion and cult is based on a distortion of the person of Christ. This biblical view is now very well summed up for us today by the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was drawn up in 1646. Let me read this to you. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon himself man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator 
between God and man. In other words, the Lord Jesus has one personality, but two natures, both God and man, and this has been the prevailing opinion of Christianity from the very beginning. Now, there have always been heretics and false teachers, but from the very beginning, the great mass of Christian thinkers in all three major branches of the church, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, have never wavered from what John wrote, what Nicaea clarified, and what Westminster confirmed. This has been the position of the church in New Testament times, in early church history, throughout the Middle Ages, during the Reformation, and in our own day, and it will be until the end of time. Now, let me conclude with some other groups, because every false religion and every cult, as I said, is characterized by a distorted view of the person of Christ. The Jewish faith admits that Jesus of Nazareth was a Jewish rabbi, but not that he was Messiah nor God. Muslims recognize Jesus as being born of a virgin and doing many miracles. They think of him as a good man and a prophet, and they even call him the Messiah. They believe he ascended into heaven, but they do not believe that he was or is God or that he is the Savior of the world. They do not believe that he died on the cross or that he rose again. They believe that Mohammed, who came after Christ, superseded him. What do Mormons believe? If you're not careful, you can be very confused about this. Mormons do believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, but they do not believe that he was or is God himself. They view him as a separate godlike figure created by God. Jehovah Witnesses is, in many ways, a modern form of Arianism. They believe that God created Jesus Christ as the first creation and denied the deity of Christ and also of the Holy Spirit. And secularism. Well, of course, that's all over the place. Some try to deny that Jesus of Nazareth ever existed, although that's a very difficult claim to make. Most acknowledge him as a great teacher, and they think that we should follow some but certainly not all of his teachings. Well, John told us to test the spirits and evaluate the views that are polluting the minds of so many people. We are always on firm ground when we hold to the apostolic truth and to the wonderful biblical identity of Jesus as both our Lord and our Savior. The hymn writer put it this way, Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God, and man the son. Thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Well, thank you for joining me today and uncovering the riches of the Bible and some morsels from Christian history. Before I sign off, let me remind you again to join me at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina this fall. The dates are August 26th, 27, 28, 29, and 30, for a Bible conference entitled A Little Patch of Grace. If you've never been to the Cove, you'll be enchanted with its restful, rustic environment. You can get more information about this conference or register for it by visiting the website thecove.org, T-H-E-C-O-V-E, thecove.org, or by calling 828 771 4800 828-771-4800. Thank you again for joining us this 
episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media and sponsored by MP Seminars. Audio engineering and production is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision, Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an outline, and posts them as blogs at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. And music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you for listening. Share this with others, and may God be with you until we meet again.